And so I've kind of realized this for myself. I've got to learn to be satisfied to be alone if I want to move forward because nobody can paddle up the stream I'm going on. And I think I, I try to convince everybody of this. You know, you have to disengage from the anchors that gave you security and comfort if you want to move forward. And you have to find a way to be comfortable with what you find when you move forward by yourself into the darkness of the unknown, which is chaos and fear and sometimes anger and certainly a lot of discouragement. You know, that's that's what you get if you're going to be creative in a big way. And you're going to have to do that if you're going to grow. AI enthusiasts to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast by Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, or EIM Plus as it's known for short, is a one-stop resource for anyone looking to learn more about emotional intelligence. In addition to articles, videos, and recommended books to help you develop and expand your EI, EIM Plus offers a platform for EI coaches and specialists so they can connect with individuals who are ready to take their life or business to the next level. Learn more by visiting ei-magazine.com. That's ei-magazine.com. You can find this link and more in today's show notes. I'm your host, Brittany Nicole, and for those of you who have been listeners for quite a while, let me just first start by apologizing that it has been several months since I have released an episode. You're probably wondering, what the heck happened? I know some of you reached out to me wondering the same, and I really appreciate you reaching out to me. So what is going on? Well, my husband and I are expecting our first child, and the first trimester was a bit rough. And I decided to take some time away from the podcast. My intention was to make an announcement and it just got placed on the back burner and just pushed to the recesses of my mind. I was just not thinking clearly. And as more time went on, the further back it got pushed to my mind until several of you recently reached out and said, hey, um... (laughs) is this show still a thing or, you know, what's going on? So thank you so much for doing that because you prompted me to finally jump back on board and release today's episode. However, I do have an announcement. Today's episode will be the final episode of this current podcast, the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. However, I will be launching a new podcast that focuses solely on healing from emotional and generational trauma and correcting for toxic social norms. Still along the lines of emotional intelligence, but more of a niche focus. So stay tuned, don't unfollow, don't unsubscribe from this podcast if you already are subscribed or following, because this will be the platform that I make the announcement for the launch of the new show and also will provide you with the link to the new show. So stay tuned for that. 
Today is bittersweet since it is going to be the last episode. This has been a good, I believe, four-year run as this podcast launched in the spring of 2020, and we released successfully 156 episodes. The amount of stories and insights that have been shared over the past four years, I personally have found so much value in, and I hope you have as well. If this is your first time listening, thank you, and there's plenty of episodes to get caught up on. This podcast will not be taken down anytime soon, so you have plenty of time to go back and listen. And for those of you who have been listeners for months or years, I just want to thank you for being a listener of this show. I am very grateful for you. Okay, so now it is time to introduce today's guest the final guest appearance on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Lincoln Stoller. Dr. Lincoln Stoller merges the realms of psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, and neurofeedback therapy to enhance mental and physical capabilities. His expertise lies in the integration of analytics, emotional, and physical intuition, aiming to facilitate extraordinary mental states. As the founder of Mind Strength Balance, Dr. Stoller is dedicated to unlocking the potential within, promoting well-being, and guiding individuals towards achieving mental and physical balance. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Stoller and to see his full background, which also includes a PhD in theoretical and mathematical physics, you can find all of those links to his bio, to his website. He's also an author. All of that information will be in today's show notes. Without further ado, here is Dr. Lincoln Stoller. Lincoln, welcome to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on. I'm really excited to talk about this topic because I think it's something that we all need to hear and understand, but sometimes it's hard to hear and understand. And before we disclose what that topic is, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to our listeners in your own way. Well, thank you very much. I am not sure what I am because I thought I was a scientist and was a physicist for a decade. And then I was a software engineer for another decade or two and into business automation. But I was always interested. I'm a generalist. That's what I am. But I'm a what you call a deep generalist. So I have a PhD in physics and uh, a decade of uh, studying the brain and as a neurofeedback therapist and two more decades in that software business world. And now I'm a psychotherapist of all things. And I find it one of the most rewarding or perhaps the most rewarding thing so far because I'm really concerned with understanding what the truth is and uh, having sort of circumambulated the various versions of it, I think the best truth is the personal one and people's personal truth. And that's what I get as a therapist. And I try to extend myself out of the therapy sort of sick model into a performance excellence um, accomplishment frame of mind. So I'm not just talking about disabilities. So that's what I am. Uh, fundamentally, I thought 
sort of a rationalist. And now I'm turning into a, what you want to call it, emotionalist. There's some other word. Oh, I'm an empath, it turns out. And maybe that's why I never was very well received and didn't like the science world, because it's mm. so sort of sterile and cold and narrow. I can so imagine. That's who I am. But we'll so get you, there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I I think it's so fascinating how I mean it seems in some ways that that's a drastic shift, but at the same time, they're so interrelated when you look at it holistically, right? Especially when you right. talk about uh, metaphysics in a sense. And I, I was listening to um, Entanglement and what is it? Schrodinger's cat and all these things like it kind of gets a little wild and wonky when you get, when you blend physics, metaphysics, quantum physics, and psychology all into one. Well, it sort of does, but I, I, I'm, I'm finding, well, it's only taken me 50 years, but I'm finding that I can keep the two apart. You know, it's sort of like having a collection of dogs. They can be amiable with each other or can they can fight with each other. If you sort of know how to, you know, give them each their appropriate attention. So uh, when you do quantum mechanics, you have to be able to just, you know, let all reality go. And you can't do that in psychology. I mean, psychology, you have to stand on something. I mean, just for your own mental health. And um, I've found you know, to get to the sort of topic of concern. Emotion is central and very broad, integrative. And, uh, you know, we've got uh, different emotions. Oh, God, I, I think I'm going to let you step into it. But but they're not, they're not hostile. I, I'm like, well, let me say this, though. Times change. Generations change, societies and cultures change. And at the turn of the 20th century, physics and metaphysics and philosophy and science were different. And uh, even psychology was just sort of being born, essentially, as a, I don't know if you want to call it a science, I don't think it ever really was, but a science-like. And I started, luckily, you know, I, I didn't start doing physics until the 70s, but I was lucky enough to be mentored by people who were of the 30s. They were old folks, and they were different, right? They were the philosophical, metaphysical kind of people. Um, and, uh, you know, this Oppenheimer movie has been popular, and it's sort of thrown people back into those days. And these were the people that I was fraternizing with they were mentoring me and as i got more involved and up to speed in the current uh, role of science i didn't find those people anymore now they were engineers and politicians and they were pragmatists and computer scientists and they couldn't care less about these vague questions about reality and philosophy and psychology the way the earlier people did so I'm kind of a bit of an anachronism in that way. 
you know, you say they don't mix. Well, they might have mixed better once. Yeah. And now they're not very well mixing. Um, this doesn't sound very emotional. So far, it's very sort of intellectual, but that's okay. But you can see that there's feeling is creeping into the, the boundaries here. I certainly have strong feelings about the way things have gone. And although I do physics, you know, every day I spend, you know, a couple hours reading journal articles, I don't talk to anyone in the field because I just sort of gave up. I, I They're out there somewhere, but I spend my time dealing with my therapy clients. They're, mm, you know, authentic. Well, you know, whatever that means. They're trying to be authentic, let's put it that way. Yeah, they're they're at least looking within instead of trying to find everything outside of them, right? They love both, yeah. But yeah, they're trying to progress. They're you know they're trying to evolve. Uh, You know, those are the people I work well with. There are lots of people who are resistant, uh, and and I kind of get to the end of my rope with those people after a while. You know, okay. And I feel like that kind of leads into the topic of conversation for today maybe something that is leading to that resistance the resistance to that chaos and turmoil and uncertainty that comes with growth and change right one thing and and i guess i'll speak you know from a personal perspective when i went for psychology i saw things very differently i was taught to see things very differently than I see them now. I wasn't so much taught to do deep introspection as much as I was to look at the symptoms and to put a label on it, to diagnose it, and then to treat it mainly with medications. But it was always kind of taught in a way, it's not your fault. There's really nothing you can do We can talk about your past. We can talk about your traumas, but this is kind of what that has caused in your life. And now you have this. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case with everybody, but that seemed that that was the predominant message. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started to do my own self-exploration and get into more of the holistic side of things that I started to, and and this was kind of the topic, or this was the conversation that you and I had earlier, was that through chaos comes clarity. It's almost like you have to get wrapped up into that to find yourself and you start to appreciate it instead of resist it. Yes. There, you have, well, most people don't seem to recognize anymore that the whole diagnosis business was just a a method of of developing a language to describe things, not uh, describe behaviors rather than describe, you know, organic states. So uh, there are many reasons a person could be depressed. And so there's a diagnosis for depression that describes it. And it's a mistake to think that it's strictly chemical or neurological, because obviously you could be triggered by situations and environments. And the same goes for all of those diagnostic categories. They were never meant to be like diseases. And no one's ever found anything to justify that they are diseases. 
in a kind of sort of uh, external sense. So, you know, like I said, times change and people's attitudes change and what are sold to people and what people buy change. So with managed care and uh, socialized medicine, there's been a big push to categorize and organize and uh, optimize economically treatment and to train people. So, you know, if you need a lot of therapists, you have to have a training that mediocre people can teach to other mediocre people. So you get an army of, well, what turns out to be mediocre therapists, but, you know, that serves the purpose if you needed somebody. I mean, it's, I don't want to degrade, uh, you know, the army or law enforcement, but when you need a lot of people to do something, you train them in the basics and uh, that's all they get. And then you throw them at the problem. And that's sort of the way psychology has gone. So you start to do your own psychology, your own inner exploration, and you realize, oh, you know, not only is there a lot more to it, but it's not even those, you know, the psychology hasn't even left, haven't even left the dock. They're just, they're just putting things in boxes and organizing them. And if you want to grow and you can grow, uh, there's a whole universe of possibilities. So having said that, I can then backtrack and say there are some people who don't really want to grow. They just want to solve and be comfortable and prevail or even, you know, be predators or subjugate or victim. I mean, this, you know, we've all got these tendencies and they've been sort of built into us and either we accepted them or not. So when you get into therapy or counseling or growth or just growing up, you kind of have to decide who are you going to surround yourself with? What are you going to spend your time doing? And what are your goals? What are you going to let in? So uh, the general encouragement is to be limited and focused and practical and accomplished to some degree. And, uh, you know, I, I just I haven't done that. I sort of refused to limit myself and to uh, accept any boundary. So I like to say, uh, first of all, I've never, I've never been accepted in any group at all, and I consider that a state of who I am. I'll always manage to offend or somehow get thrown out of any group, and I think that's how you know you're finished with a group. That's how I think you graduate from school, from a job, from a group. You eventually get thrown out. I mean, if you're really smart, you leave and say, oh, "I've outgrown this." But if you're stubborn and bullheaded like I am and you want every last bit, uh, you stick around until everyone's had enough of you. And that's not bad. It's just a little bruising, that's all. And, um, you know, it's got its downside. I was just thinking today it would be nice to have a few more people to talk to in physics and psychology and, and artificial intelligence. But I just don't find anybody as deeply involved as I am. So I do it by myself, which is a little odd. But, you know, this is an interesting story that Isaac Newton, who's considered the, the father of physics, no one would talk to him. He, he lectured to empty halls because the students would, would not come and nobody would listen to him. 
And so, you know, these we have these fantasies about, in fact, Newton even said this, I, I, if I've seen further than other people, it's because they stood on the shoulders of giants. He said, that was baloney. He, he was the only one up there. He wasn't stand. He's, you know, he took the data of a few astronomers and there were some other mathematicians, but he was singular. And so I've kind of realized this for myself. I've got to learn to be satisfied to be alone if I want to move forward because nobody can um, paddle up the stream I'm going on. And I think I, I try to convince everybody of this. You know, you have to disengage from the anchors that gave you security and comfort if you want to move forward and you have to find a way to be comfortable with what you find when you move forward by yourself into the darkness of the unknown, which is chaos and fear and sometimes anger and certainly a lot of discouragement. Mm. And that's, you know, that's, that's what you get if you're going to be creative in a big way. And you're going to have to do that if you're going to grow. I'm sorry. I, I'm just not, I'm not the kind of guy that thinks if you do it right, everything is peachy and comfortable. Um, I've managed to survive, literally. Uh, I was a mountaineer when I was young, and for 10 years, I had all these friends dying all around me. And I managed to get through that period, and now I, I'm wiser and safer. But I appreciated uh, the risk. I'm not sure it was such a good idea, but I did it, and I survived. So I have a a kind of a risk uh i'm not what's the opposite of risk averse i'm risk tolerant i'm even risk uh encouraging and so when i talk to people and you know i'm talking to people now i'm you know right here saying uh you have to have courage if you're going to grow and you have to be sort of stalwart and stubborn and visionary faithful and you have to most perhaps of all you have to believe in yourself that's kind of the hardest thing it's kind of the end stage when all the stuff comes together and you finally say i believe in myself and then you're got some real roots and it's hard to get there a, a lot of people uh you know who've accomplished a lot say it took them a long time to get to the stage where they could say i don't care if i'm wrong i'm still going to work at this um and these are the people i mean i don't know how many people failed but of those people who succeeded they all had that attitude they were going to stick with it so you know i i tend to say your problems are the solution you know your the symptoms of your problems are the solution to them and if you can't fit them together right well just you know find new pieces or shape new pieces or take a new angle, but be reluctant in giving up if you really feel called to resolve something. And, you know, probably the most common thing we feel called to resolve is relationships. Um, I'll stop there because I could obviously go on forever. So, I mean, honestly, I'm loving listening to this. So if mm. you want to go on by all means, because I love the direction you're going with this. Well, you wanted to talk about chaos. Uh, I think it's uh, one of the the legs, if you will, of growth. Um, I said you have to be prepared and courageous and uh, so forth. 
And if you look at problems as, um, you know, if you just turn them right upside down and say a problem could be an opportunity in disguise. I mean, that's kind of Pollyanna-ish. But, I mean, seriously, uh, a, a problem is definitely things that aren't working out in the way they're being put together. Yeah. With a certain pressure to move forward. There's got to be pressure or you don't have a problem. Because if you don't have pressure, you don't care, you're not motivated, you're indifferent, you just drop it. So if a problem is going to get to you, there's got to be some headwind going on here. So it's that headwind. It's like, do you believe in what's pushing you toward your discomfort? Right. And uh, it's at that point where, you know, fear starts coming because you're you're afraid of what you might lose. You're afraid of what might happen to you. Uh, jobs, relationship, money, security, comfort. You get attached to these things. Mm, that's and the at word. the same yeah. time, the problem is telling you something needs to be rearranged. So you could uh, you could take the radical approach and drop everything, you know, go live in a tent in the woods or mountaintop. And uh, or the uh, incremental approach, which is what we all I think try to do, which is like test one thing and test another and see who our real friends are and what makes us feel the best and who we can trust. Um, so I want to, so go ahead. we're talking about, you know, really being solution focused over problem focused. So instead of having such a heavy fixation on the problem itself, acknowledging that the problem exists, understanding why it exists, and then putting our energy towards the solution instead of dwelling on the emotions that tend to be attached to the problem right okay let me let me say let me extend that first of all i don't think emotions well emotions are a huge constellation they're they can attach they can detach you have some well this is the problem we don't have feel that we have a lot of choice in our emotions they emerge we we, we are subsumed by them they grab us so one of the things is to be able to choose your emotions to say, maybe this isn't the appropriate emotion, or maybe I'm triggered in this situation because of this series of associations, and maybe I could reconfigure myself and feel differently about the situation. So if you understand that emotions are generally motivating how you think and what you do, mm -hmm. if you want to change anything, thoughts or actions, you're going to have to look at your emotions and what's motivating you. You can't be false to yourself at least not for long. Right. Uh, so, you know, how do you really feel? And can you change some of these feelings? You know, is a problem really got to be annoying? Or could you relax into it? Say an, an annoying person, a, a relationship, you know, do you have to be adversarial and defensive and aggressive? And, or can you just look for something else? So here, I think is a essential thing in therapy and growth. You have to accept responsibility for what you see. So even if it's not your fault, and it fault is not very useful, but you know we sort of tend to feel that way. Even if it's not your responsibility, let's put it that way. Um, it pays to take some responsibility in changing it. 
uh, take responsibility for more than you're responsible for, which, you know, if you look at that, it really means extend your power beyond your limits. You know, be nice to people who aren't nice to you, not for the purpose of uh, necessarily manipulating them or changing Anything, or being the just, quote unquote virtuous person, the bigger or, person, or the hero, <laughs> yeah, or the healer, just to uh, I mean, this gets very close to forgiveness. You don't forgive people because you absolve them of their crimes, you forgive them because you detach from their mm -hmm. bad behavior. So, I forgive you means basically, I don't want to have anything more to do with your bad behavior, you know, it's not going to bother me, I'm not going to dwell on it, and I'm not going to put it in your face. I'm also not going to put up with it. Um, I mean, it's very important. A, I, I, what I understand is a misunderstanding of the Christian idea of turning the other cheek, which doesn't mean you ignore. It means you make it more difficult for other people to offend you because you're not supposed to hit a person when they have turned the other cheek. So I mean, that's a little complicated. But accepting, trying to reframe a problem as something that's offering you an alternative. I want to say something else to get a little darker. Mm. I'm always concerned about trouble and uh, evil and demonic effects, whatever those are. And I tend to think of them as uh, the message in the, the negativity. What's the message in the negativity that you've invited into your life or created in your life through, you know, some circumstances, maybe decisions you made. And do you, is there a message that you can take out of that negativity that is positive and then leave the negativity behind? Because I envision, I envision a demon as the, the messenger of your negativity, the situation, the, uh, the problem. It's not going to be something you fix. It's going to be something you learn from and leave behind. Mm. I mean, like I, I was in physics for 10 years. And what I learned from physics is to throw it all away. You know, it, you can get in these textbooks as I, I read them. And they're sort of interesting. They go on for hundreds of pages with equations and equations. And it's all baloney. It works for certain problems. And the essential things it doesn't work for are exactly the things you need to focus on. So if you look at everything that works, you'll never figure out what doesn't. And on the other hand, if you look what doesn't work, what do you, what what are your tools? You no wrench fits for a problem that you can't solve. So what do you do? You know, get angry. You know, throw your toys around the room. Uh, but well, no, you basically have to forgive the problem and move up to an open, creative state in which you respect yourself. And you have to know a boundary of how much can you put up with? What do you need not to overwork yourself or get yourself over anxious or over fearful? And uh, you are the, uh, you know, this is what your mind is for. It's to manage your life. And if you're not, if your life is not working well, uh, you could say it's somebody else's problem, but ultimately it's your mind that's, you know, the parent in this growing environment. Mm, yeah. Uh, so getting to chaos and accepting chaos. And here I think emotions are your 
some feeling of the situations that you created. You know, it could be a loving situation, happy or not happy. Could be a sense of security and comfort, sufficient or insufficient. And we mistake the emotion as the thing we want instead of the message of whether we're doing right. So I tell people who are unhappy, it's it's just a thing. It, it's a, it, a set of instructions for how you might fix your life if you're careful and diligent and impeccable and of goodwill and self-respecting. Mm. And you, you don't have to be nice to other people if they're not nice to you, but don't waste your time, you know, getting in arguments that aren't productive. Very rarely are arguments productive. Criticism is different. There was constructive criticism. And finding people who you work well with and working well with people, including yourself, is a path toward coping with, right, chaos, unknown, uncertainty. Yeah. So this is how I work with people, try to get them into that state. I, I really resonate with what you're talking about with the evil or you know some people label it um in religion as like you said demons or just that negative energy the things that come into your life that you say you know why me why did this happen i see it as much you know i i gravitate more towards the eastern philosophy of balance of duality the yin and the yang and now looking back Every chaotic experience, every problem in my life was trying to teach me a lesson, but by ignoring what it was teaching me and instead getting wrapped up into it and finding someone else to blame or perpetuating those toxic feelings, emotions, behaviors, I just kept staying stuck in that toxic feedback loop until I became aware enough to say, what am I possibly doing? How am I perceiving this situation that is preventing me from taking the lesson from it? So it's like all of those things had something to teach me if I allowed it to teach me. Otherwise, they would come back into my life in some form or another very similar form until I learned that lesson. And so now when I'm in a problematic state, sure, I do have those emotions of fear and anger and all of these normal human emotions. But on top of that, I have a different level of awareness that allows me to see beyond that fear, beyond that anger and say, okay, let me just sit with this and really dig a little bit deeper and see what I can learn and discover about myself or about how I am interacting with my environment. Is that what you're kind of getting at as well? I think so. I I have a kind of pointed attitude. Mm, I'm kind of a warrior type. You know, I had most experience with authorities in my physics upbringing, in my physics uh, experience. So for 10 years, I was dealing with a few inspired people, like three, and then a horde of uh, insufferable and 
disrespectful people, authoritarians, manipulative, exploitive, and not very nice. And I kept myself in that environment. I tried to, uh, you know, extend myself in different directions. And I remember one, uh, there's a guy named Steve Weinberg, who's famous for all he did. And he's probably one of the most knowledgeable guys I knew. I always felt he had head the size of a basketball, but it might've been my perception. Certainly the amount that came out of there, of his head. And I asked to work with him and he said, no, I, I won't work with you because you're not smart enough, he told me. And that was kind of a slap in the face that I thought about for a long time. And I have to come after, you know, years and years of thinking about this. Gee, it's probably, you know, 40 years now that he was right. I'm not smart enough in his sense because he was, he was, I don't know, he, he, he was off the charts in a certain way that I'm not. At the other hand, he was once asked when we went to lunch if he regretted anything. And he said, yeah, I regret that I'm not more creative, basically. So I'm creative and I'm general and I see things that he never saw. And I'd never be as smart in his, you know, definition. It still would have been fun to work with him, maybe, but maybe not, because he's not that tall. He wasn't that tall. He's a very arrogant guy. I mean, brilliant, but still. And so I met a lot of people like that, but most of them weren't as, you know, the paradigm of, of, of genius that he was, a few. So I, I kind of feel that it's been very useful for me to uh, push really hard on those boundaries about of what I can do. Gee, I, you know, I've, I've almost killed myself quite a few times, actually. I've crashed, learned to fly airplanes, and I've crashed two of them. I, a lot of people don't walk away from an airplane crash, but wow. I walked away from two. So, gee, that was skillful, wasn't it? Um, and uh, I remember uh, falling off a mountain. I did it that a few times. And Jeez. the most memorable fall was off uh, you know, the tallest peak in the Canadian Rockies. I, I think I fell 500 feet. And uh, the interesting thing about that was that I opened my eyes and watched it. And I it, it went on for what? I don't know, 10 seconds. So I had a chance to reflect on what I was going to do as I was falling. And I decided in a very positive way, I was going to open my eyes and enjoy this if possible. Wow. And I did. I, you know, fall, falling is not a problem. It's what you hit. That's the problem. And I didn't really hit anything. I was just sort of tumbling down out of control down the steep slope. It was snow and covered with ice. And so it was slippery. And because I enjoyed it, and uh, I'll never have an experience like that ever again. I hope <sighs> it was no, not a trauma. It was it was a learning experience. Mm. And this, you know, it was over the limit of a learning experience. It was sort of like I don't know, jumping out of an airplane without without a parachute and hoping you'll land a lake or something. It was not a thing you would do, and it was not a good thing to do. Uh, I learned about my partner. I learned about the situation. I learned about my attitude. And I realized, you know, you don't get a trauma unless there's, you know, a really sharp object that penetrates your psyche. And if it's just an amusement park ride, uh, you walk away fine afterwards. Yeah. I mean, you, you could say, you know, what if your car went off a bridge 
and for some miraculous way it landed upright and bounced uh and no one was hurt uh you know, you could be traumatized or not, depending on what went through your mind at the time. So I say that extreme examples because, uh, like I say, I continued with physics for 10 years of abuse. And now, finally, I have some self-respect in what I can do. I didn't have that experience in psychology. That was just one year of abuse. You know, sure, you know, like you said that People told you what you could do and think, and I didn't agree, and so they told me I was wrong, but it only went on for a year, and I was already smart enough to know that you don't get wisdom from institutional programs. You just get minimal qualifications, yeah. which is all I got. And, um, okay, go ahead. I, I wanted to, so I think that's a fascinating point about trauma is largely your perception of that situation. Mm -hmm. If someone had a very traumatic experience and during that moment, they saw it as that. Do you, is there a way to help them reverse that, to rewire that yes. perception of that trauma? Yeah, so let's talk about the ways you can do that. One is you can understand it better rather than being the victim. Well, you were the victim. And it's good to be a victim because you see all the dark stuff as a victim. You know, if you're above the victim role, you are in control and so forth. But if you are the victim of someone else's bad behavior, then you have the opportunity of understanding what their bad behavior was all about. You have You see the nuts and bolts of it all the grubby details in their loss of control and their uh, and the irreality or the fantasy that they inhabit. And the reason that's important is because those people are often connected to us by family or lineage or circumstance that we've created. We've picked those people in a sense uh, because we thought they were going to serve us. And maybe they did, in fact, serve us by abusing us. I mean, you can stretch the truth. There is no truth, really. It's a question of understanding. So this is what I tell some of my clients who are bothered by the behavior of someone else, such as sexual abuse or uh, family violence or just uh, exploitive behavior. It's like, this is your chance to understand, not just for yourself, but for everyone, why people do that. And until, in a sense, you're curing them, even though they may be dead or hopeless, you're curing their mindset, and you'll see it better in the world, and you'll understand it better in the world, and you'll be able to help both yourself and other people in similar situations. If you can understand why that person did what they did, if you can, you're the best person to understand. It may also be the person most pained by the experience, but you're still the most able person to understand why you're father did what he did or why your relative friend business partner you know cheated lied betrayed you uh if you can learn that lesson then you're incredibly powerful if you can become immune to betrayal and and have the insight to tell the truth from a lie then you have a lot of power and you're not going to get that power 
without going to the, the bottom, you might say, of what motivates a person. Um, so, so I, try I don't to get disagree people to with go you. There. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I just, or I don't disagree with you. However, I know people that I have worked with myself that will say that is the most outrageous thing. How dare you say I need to come from a place of understanding them and forgiving them and releasing them of that? Oh, wait, wait. Um, when they remember, forgiving is not absolving, it's right. just understanding. Right. And again, I agree, but this is the way that they perceive it in their mind. What we are trying to say is just preposterous to them. Well, then they're going to be fighting against a demon that will not relent. You know, the desire of a parent to abuse their child is uh, insane, uh, un unhealthy to the extreme, destructive eternally, and uh, and and it will continue to a point of complete self-destruction. Yeah, you cannot correct that person if they don't want to be corrected, but you can understand them to the point of knowing what caused it and to see that in the world around you. So to see the predatory behavior of others, the incipient uh, sadism in others or negative attitudes or indifference. I mean, they say the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's that you don't care. And then you can do anything. Mm -hmm. And it's true, you know, the, you know, the the fascists, I don't like to stereotype people too much, but you know, the most abusive people don't act out of hatred, they act out of indifference and uh self concern for their own benefit. Um I, there could be exceptions, of course. But um so this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to absolve, we're not trying to allow or invite. In fact, we're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to immunize, cure, and uh, resolve so that the stuff that victimized us is eliminated from the system, the system that we inhabit and that we live in every day and to a large degree accept in small doses. Um, you know, so are you, if you're really going to be a hero against uh, prejudice and violence, then are you going to stand up to it everywhere you see it? Because if you do, you're going to be seeing it everywhere. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't, I, I don't know. It's a question of boundaries. What can you do? You know, are you going to be Nelson Mandela and go to prison for 30 years? Or are you going to work with your church group and try to uh, help, uh, you know, psychologically disturb people every day? You know, one makes a big difference, but then a lot of Nelson Mandela's don't survive 30 years in prison. And other people make small differences, and it's easily affordable. So what can you afford to do? And then you have to turn that around for yourself. You know, what can you, what do you need to do for yourself? Yeah. What do you need, you know? Well, and it goes back to the attachment that you were saying, you know, um, attachment to 
time lost that they believe, you know, I lost this time in my life. I lost my childhood or, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be physical or psychological abuse. It could be like you had said, a business partner, maybe they lost their entire life savings. And so Mm -hmm. they're attached to what was Mm -hmm. and can't get past it to see what could be, you know, how, how do you shift that, that mindset? How do you detach? How do you help people to detach? Well, okay. Two ways. One, you could take psychedelics. They're a great way of detaching because that just knocks the, you know, legs right out from under you. And it's not a simple solution and it's not a solution that works for a lot of people. And there's really no guarantee at all that it'll work at all for you. There are people who advertise that it's, you know, the new cure for things, but they don't know. Uh, With a little experience, you'll see it's all over the map. And uh, it's a possibility. It's like uh, a two by four to the head as a solution for depression. Um, I wouldn't advise it, but uh, it works for some people. And it's an interesting idea. The other thing that I do is I do hypnotherapy because hypnotherapy is a sort of uh, dream work in which I encourage you to go back to emotions and memories that are meaningful, could be hurtful, harmful, or traumatic, uh, to the extent that you can see them more clearly without the emotion. You can unlayer it. In hypnosis, you can do some interesting things. Some of it is real, as in, you know, a real memory, but a lot of it is just imagined. So I often do past life regression, and I consider that imagined. Uh, It's kind of like painting a new picture on an empty palette. Mm. And in that picture, you can paint some of the traumatic things that you've experienced in your own life in a way that you can reflect on them from a different perspective. And then it becomes a learning process rather than a painful, you know, blaming recollection I like that idea. It's called guided visualization or um, free-flowing consciousness. But as you could imagine, hypnosis means you're in an altered state. So you're not entirely thinking clearly. And your emotions are sort of bubbling up from the left and right with some control. And then I'm there as a counselor to sort of shape things and uh, keep them on the rails, move them in a positive direction. So I I think that's very interesting. I do that with people. Some people are a little slow to get to it, especially the intellectual people. They've never really Mm -hmm. sort of let their skirts down and uh, gone, you know, gone gone crazy. It feels like gone crazy, right? It's like a dream. Uh, You don't know what's going to happen next. Can everybody get into a hypnotic state? Because... I've never, I've never actually done like clinical hypnosis before, but I've went to these, you know, you go to festivals and shows and they'll have like a hypnotherapist on stage, having everybody do different stuff. And like, I've just never been able to get into that state. Yeah. That's a special, that's a stage state. You know, you'd be able to do that if you were a good actor. I think good actors can do that. Not because they're acting, but because they can move into another personality and they like Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, Everybody's, in a state of mind all the time, Uh, even if it's an unconscious state of mind. Uh, You build it, and some people are very narrow and very rational and very rigid, very uncontrolled, anxious, vigilant, all these things. They're all states 
hypnosis is just a different state. The stage hypnosis state is just somnambulism or trance. But there are all kinds of stages. So what's good for you? You know, what what would be good for you? So you personally, Brittany, might respond well to a light state of fantasy and imagination where you feel comfortably in control because maybe that's where you feel comfortable. You're not supposed to be terrorized or re-traumatized, but you are supposed to go into an area that's outside the normal to see from a different perspective and to feel, very important, to feel from a different perspective too. Mm. That's what hypnosis does. It lets you feel differently. And then you, you know, depending on how much you allow yourself to do it, you can come back with uh, inspiration or even uh, enlightenment. I mean, I have all these stories of people going into these states and encountering things they didn't expect. And uh, as an observer, me, it's very interesting to watch a person navigate their subconscious because you don't do that in conversation normally. I mean, you can see it in some... In, in what might be called a hysterical encounter. You can see a person going into altered states. And uh, so like I said, so psychedelics can take you into an altered state, but you can do it yourself with hypnosis. You can also do it with meditation. And a third thing, which I'm now telling everybody about, and is, is kind of the hardest sell of all, you can do it neurologically. You can change your basis of your baseline of thinking and anxiety and vigilance. And this is sort of slowly seeping into Western culture in the form of mindfulness. So to meditate, then you get calmer, and you, you react less suddenly, and you're triggered by less things. In that meditative state, or there are many meditative states, you can start to see things differently. You can start to so, so for example, if you are always with a partner, a romantic partner, you're always getting involved with an argument on some topic, and it always seems to go the same way. And if you learn to go into a different altered state of more calm and reserve and distance, and then you can see them get into that same, same combative, assertive, declarative state, <clears throat> but you're not in it, mm. you can start to... I don't know what the word you want to use. Forgive, understand, appreciate, realize what they're really about and why you're involved with them in that way from a different perspective. I mean, if you get on the same train, you'll go to the same place. But if you step off the train, so this is neurological. This is how you're habitually seeing things and reacting. And I teach people to do it through brainwave training, which is a good way to actually see your mind wander and see you know what you're standing on in terms of uh, awareness very hard to see what you're standing on when you're standing on it mm -hmm. so the brain biofeedback uh you could compare it with other biofeedback like you know learning to warm your hands in a very simple sense here you're learning to relax your vigilance or lower your anxiety. So, I mean, looking at you, I'm looking at you on this video, and I've spoken to you for almost an hour or more. 
and I see you in my intuition as a sculpted person. You have a I can almost I can't hear what you're thinking, but I can hear I can hear your mind going. I can, I can hear it's like like a hum in my mind, you know. And some people it's like a dull roar, and other people it's like, you know, the screech of brakes. And and you could change the way you see the world, and it would probably open doorways to your past that are now close to you because they're too heavy, they're too dark, they're too uh, chaotic or uncertain. So it's you, you actually can gain more perception by altering your um, rhythms, uh, frequencies. And so I, I try to explain this to people and they probably look at me dumbly and it doesn't really solve any of their problems or it doesn't sound like anything they heard and then they ignore me but i'm if they're my clients i'm going to keep hammering on them because there are little devices you can buy i don't know where it's going somewhere around me um the muse headset is the one i tell people to get m-u-s-e they're not that sophisticated but they're it's like a it's like just a basic exercise machine for your mind hmm. uh and it serves the purpose just like physical exercise serves for your body if you do it repetitively and with attention it will improve your state of health mental health in this case just like physical exercise improves your physical health there's no substitute for it you, you can't just you know diet or um i don't know what it, exercise requires exercise and brain training requires some brain training as well you could say that the people that annoy you in life are trying to teach you to learn to be calm or you could just learn to be calm without the annoyance. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the muse you're talking about. So is that like, does it emit a frequency or what exactly does it do? It just, it, it it's a two part thing. It monitors your brainwaves. It just picks up, Got it. Okay. you know, it's like when we were in high school and we built a little light bulb with a, a mm -hmm. battery and a light bulb and a switch. Mm -hmm. It just puts contacts on your scalp and it measures the uh, conductance between the contacts that is happening between on your scalp. So these are the brain waves. And brain waves are very much like music. You know, lullabies are slow and calming and we get them to slow and calm state. And, uh, you know, uh, heavy metal music is exactly the opposite, very sharp and jarring. And it puts up in a in a very anxious puts us in an anxious and enervated state. So the brain waves basically are like that, and there are more brain waves having to do with being distracted and being thoughtful and being vigilant. And the device simply records them, hmm. and then your smartphone, which you need, is the second part of the equipment, uh, displays them on its screen. And then uh, actually it displays them with sound. So the, the, the simple sound is uh, a nature sound like streams or waters or waves or wind or fire. And the sound grows larger, the more anxious you get and the sound gets softer, the more calm you get. Hmm. And there are a few other cues. Well, that's fascinating. It's um, It kind of reminds me a little bit of the quick coherence or coherence uh, heart math Institute. 
Very much. Yeah. Her, yeah. They had another a one device. Like can't remember what it's called. I actually have it somewhere on my bookshelf. Yeah, I have but... it too, somewhere on my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just um, another uh, way to do it. Yeah, heart, heart that's fascinating. Heart math is particular to, to uh, cardiac health more than cognitive health. I found, I interviewed um, the author or one of the co-authors of The Power of All, and I had no clue how quickly a state of awe could change your mental state. And it was just practicing just a minute of awe, like maybe two, three times throughout the day, just finding something to, or even generating, you know, pulling a memory that makes you feel a state of awe. But like, I'm looking at my microphone right now and it has the foam cover on it. It's got, you know, the little pockets in it and the way the light hits it. And I could just fixate on that and get into just a very present state because I am just hyper-focused on the texture of that, right? And it kind of shifts me out of whatever state I was in, whether it was worry or anxiety. Um, but yeah, and then being out in nature is huge for me. I love to just walk barefoot in the grass, just feeling that texture of the grass on my feet. And I know a lot of people say grounding, you know, the way it affects your body is also beneficial, but um, I just love being out in nature. It always puts me in a good mood, no matter how stressed I am, if I can just sit and be present in nature for 15 minutes, sometimes um, it changes everything. Well, you know what I do and. I haven't gotten to the point of telling other people to do this. There's only so much you can tell people about. I go for a walk every day for an hour. And if I'm uh, if if I'm planning things well, I'll take a folding chair and a book and I'll go into the woods and I'll sit in the woods for an hour in a clearing reading a book. Mm. And uh, it has an effect on me. A very integrative effect you know I, I plan my day so i have time to do this you wouldn't want to do it if you're feeling stressed right. or hurried so it has to be suitable to you um and uh you know one of the things from all the mountaineering i did i, I came to the conclusion why do i need to put myself in danger to feel rewarded why can't i just go out into the woods so this is what I'm still working on. Why can't I just be there? Why do I have to, uh, you know, prevail in some challenge? I mean, you could go both ways. And I, I, in fact, what we talked about before was I saying that I I have gotten a lot from challenges. But what I want people who I work with to achieve is a state of balance that uh, doesn't require constantly being fed by threat or challenge or uh, you know the need to prevail or prove yourself. I mean, it's it, it's kind of a state of enlightenment, right? You, it's a, a stable state, a stable, high, functional, mm. satisfied, and outwardly giving state, uh, radiant, you might say. Content, very content. Uh, you know, and you can't describe it, 
But if you could get there, you'd say, oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, what I do as a therapist is I just sort of, I'm, I'm like a court jester. I just make a fool of myself looking for a way to knock you into that state, you know, emotionally, intellectually, uh, cognitively, neurologically, whatever. I don't exactly know what, you know, your particular puzzle, how it's particular, your particular puzzle is solved. So I try all those things. Well, I encourage you to try them all. I'm just a talking head after all. Um, and, uh, you know, they have to have a rapport. So like we have some sort of rapport. I have to convey honesty and integrity and vulnerability. And then you or whoever I'm talking to has to respond to that. You know, I'm inviting you to my world by I'm going into your world. See, that's important to be empathic. I, And I get upset by everybody and their problems, which I think is what I'm paid to do, right? And uh, that's how I understand. I become the victim of you, the victim of your problem. I take it on. I feel it with sincerity. And then I apply my formula of forgiveness and understanding to say something intelligent. Um, and really, the, all my power comes from my experience. All this school was just, just baloney. It was just more experience. And like I said, it's certifications are, are minimal. All you'll get is, you know, from a guy with a, a degree is very baseline stuff. You, you can't look at training as any a demonstration of excellence it's yeah. just i don't even know if it's important so for example in psychedelic psychology psychedelic therapy or underground psycho psych, psychedelics there is no training and there is no certification you know and it's true it's pretty chaotic but there are, are some better therapists they're not called therapists but they're better they'll do better for your therapy than a yeah. certified therapist because they are working with a tool that can be powerful and useful. Mm. Yeah. Like a deeper knowing they're able to, they take the intellectual knowing to a very deeper intuitive knowing. And emotional, you know, they call it emotional. Yeah. I'm not sure that is different than intuitive. So how do you want to summarize this? Mm. Wow, this, there's there's so much to um wow, there's so much to all of this. Like everything is interwoven beautifully. But I think the overarching overarching takeaway is that you don't have to be quote unquote a victim of your life. You can be in control, but you have to also, as, as you were saying, it's almost paradoxical. You have to accept mm, that it is state of being a victim in order to overcome the victim mentality. This is sort is of that what fair I learned. to say. Yeah. This is what the metaphor for me is mountaineering. You are definitely a victim when you're, when you go out to climb a mountain, you're a victim of the mountain, it's not mm. a victim of you. You are putting yourself in a risky position like you do in a relationship, like you do in a job or a project or a commitment. And then 
you have to have boundaries. You have to have a sense of a goal. What are you there for? What are you there for? Mm -hmm. um, you have to have the ability to take something away. Otherwise, you've wasted your time. And, the, you know, as a, you know, most people don't know what extreme sports are, but you can imagine it, I suppose. A lot of work, a lot of suffering, limited reward, a lot of imagination and uh, a lot of personal work involved. And that's, you know, my approach to any problem. You know, I may be a little extreme. I may be asking you to be going a little further than you'd like. And I'm trying to give you support, mine, but also to engender in you your own faith in your process. Yeah. And and maybe the last thing I'll say is there is a lineage issue here. You are who you are because of where you came from. Your parents, your grandparents, your culture, your country, your religion. And you're carrying all that. You're kind of the sum total of these things. And the problems you have or had have some reflection of that. Mm. So when you're solving your problem, you're really solving a much bigger problem. And you have to realize that you are, the bigger your problem, the more heroic is your project. Yeah. And the greater potential you have for solving a lot of other people's problem. And are you up to it? Because you have, in some unknowing sense, been picked to do it. That's that's powerful. That is a beautifully said, powerful, and, uh, empowering takeaway, empowering um, and transformative and hopeful because I, I totally, I totally feel you on that. Like even with the work that I've done for myself and now I'm seeing the ripple effect of that work on others, the impact that that's having. Right. Solving the problems that I also went through, you know, healing those wounds um, within myself so I can heal it externally. I mean, I, I resonate with that so much. So Lincoln, um, I know you have a lot of published work out there. So I would love for you to kind of share how people can learn more about what you do, your work and what you have out there for people to get their hands on. Well, the first thing is the website, mindstrengthbalance.com. That's the portal to the resources. And on that website, you'll find areas for learning, for therapy, for hypnosis, for uh, other things. And then you'll find the ability to subscribe to my blog. I'm putting this stuff out weekly. And it's pretty deep stuff, you know, like, six pages on a topic or an essay or a theme, all of these themes that we're talking about. And I've been doing it for years. So I realized this spring, I don't want this stuff to get lost. So mm -hmm. I'm putting a compilation of it in book form, which I'm working on, you know, today, and it's close to being done very close. And then I have another book because uh, I wanted to reach a broader audience that I'm trying to get published in traditional publishing, but that's very slow. So if you subscribe to the blog, then you'll get access to all the stuff, the unpublished stuff and the manuscripts. And I'd love people to go on there because I need their feedback. I need their endorsement. 
to publish these things. And uh, so go to mindstrengthbalance.com, sign up for the blog, and I will be putting out calls for people to get digital books and manuscripts. And if you want, you can talk to me. I talk to people for free for 15 minutes before I become engaged with them. Wonderful. And I'll make sure to put all those links in the description and show notes so uh, people have easy access. But thank you again. This was a wonderful conversation, and I really appreciate your perspective. No, thanks. Um, I hope I can help uh, you and other people get back in touch if you want to mine this material further. Definitely. Thank you.